Welcome to the Greg Bennett Show presented by Any Question. I'm your host, Greg Bennett, and this episode is absolutely wonderful. Quite often I've had athletes and sports scientists and coaches on this show. Today's episode is two of the world-leading growth experts, two people that know how to build growth engines for companies, how to create virality. They take these small companies, these startups, to multi-billion dollar companies. These two know how to do it. The first, Yuri Timmon. Yuri, he is an advisor to a multitude of companies around the world in helping them grow. He spent eight and a half years as the head of Grammarly Growth, and anybody that uses Grammarly realizes just how fantastic that is. I use it every single day. It helps me with every single thing that I write. And Yuri in this episode is just so giving of so much knowledge in terms of how you can help build and grow your business. Uh, also on this episode, my business partner, my good friend, and the CEO and founder of Any Question, Ed Baker. He's back. And this was a really fun episode to have the two of them discussing and sharing knowledge about growth and and how to build a business. We get into specifics with Yuri about paid performance marketing and how how valuable that is still today in the economic climate that we're in and how businesses are pivoting where they need to and, and maybe dialing back some of that paid performance. We also go into some specifics being that Yuri specializes in subscription-based companies and he goes into some really great detail about what companies can offer for free and what they should look for in terms of premium offerings. And, and I, for one, truly got a lot out of this episode with both of them. It really is a fantastic episode. I encourage you to listen to the end. At the end, they both talk about what experiences they've had from their sports and how they use those experiences to become better business leaders, Ed in triathlon and Yuri in ballroom dancing. But just a fascinating episode, a great conversation. I feel like we could have the two of them on this show over and over again. I feel like we scratched the surface and there's so much more there, but this one's still a lot to unpack and I'm truly grateful for both of them. While I've got you a little bit of housekeeping, please go check out any question. It is free. You can go check it out. You can listen to all the world-renowned experts we have on the platform. We're we're about a 1,000 experts across 30 to 40 channels now, everything from pets and first responders to all the various sports, healthcare. There's so much there. Go listen to the answers. Go ask any question. The world-leading experts are there to answer it. But just so much in this one. I hope you enjoy it. And remember to share the show. Give me any Apple reviews if you're enjoying it. I, I truly appreciate it. And get back to me if you uh, uh, want specific things. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me. You can find me on any question. Go to anyquestion.com forward slash Greg Bennett, or even you can go to anyquestion.com forward slash Ed Baker, and you can ask him follow up questions to this episode. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. All right. This show has always been focused on high-performance individuals, and these two are two of the best in the world at what they do. Both of them are world-leading growth experts. They ignite business growth through deep understanding and expertise in key areas such as product development, strategy, market research, organizational development, and just so much more. The first, well, he's a return guest. He's been to Harvard grad. He's a Stanford MBA led international growth at Facebook until they reached a billion monthly active users and went public, and then led growth and product teams at Uber. And he's now my business partner and the founder and CEO 
of any question. And you can find his previous episodes at episode 95 and 138 of The Greg Bennett Show. My other guest, well, he's a seasoned expert with expertise in building growth engines and for organizations. And he's a proven track record of success, having led growth for, at Grammarly for eight and a half. I thought it was nine years, but I'm pretty sure it's about eight and a half years at Grammarly. Um, Don't round up. <laughs> <laughs> Don't round up. And he's also worked at growth uh, at companies such as Canva, Airtable, Otter.ai, and many others. And he now advises some of the world's greatest tech no- companies. And this man just knows how to build subscription businesses. So it's just an enormous honor and privilege to have them both on the show. So welcome. And thanks for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show, Ed Baker and Yuri Timmon. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Thanks for having us, Greg. And Yuri, it's great to see you here as well. Good to see you both. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how I could be doing um, any, any less than great after an intro like that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Greg always makes us sound better than we are. <laughs> I just read your resumes. Well, you got my, you got my adrenaline pumping. I just I'm, read I'm ready to go. Well, Yuri, you, you came and spoke to many of us at Any Question a few weeks ago, and um, all of us left that call just going, wow, that was really amazing. And I think within five minutes, I'd sent you an email saying, hey, mate, could you, you think you'd join us on the, on the podcast? And you were very gracious and said you'd love to. And, and I truly appreciate you for that. And um, so here's the opportunity to have you on the show. So everybody beyond any question can listen to all of your wisdom. And like I said in the intro, I brought my outstanding business partner, Ed Baker, on to really help also in the discussion, being that you guys have a lot of crossover and similarities in the areas of growth. I think you both have strengths in different areas, but I think that'll be great to come out in this episode as well. And I think for people listening, just wherever you are in the world, whatever business you're growing, whatever company you're working in, I think you'll find there's just a lot of knowledge that you can grab out of this one. I even want to lean on a little bit some of the sport crossover, I believe ballroom dancing. You mentioned when you spoke to any question, Yuri, which I thought would be a bit of fun from lessons that you guys have learned from those things and how you've brought them into the tech space as well. But before we get into all of that, Yuri, we need to get to know you a little bit better. So if you wouldn't mind, let's rewind the clock. And if you could just sort of tell us when you sort of found your your passion for growth engines and, and all of that, that'd be great. Cool. Yeah, let's do it. Um, I'll try not to go too far back, uh, <laughs> but uh, let's let's go back to 2007. Um, I'm coming out of undergrad, having studied uh, you know business and econ at Cal, um, and I'm recruiting for all sorts of things other than growth. I'm you know I'm interviewing for management consulting, investment banking, corporate finance, etc. Because I, I wasn't an engineer by trade, I wasn't coming from a um, from from a technical background. Tech companies weren't really looking for someone with my skill set or a frame of thinking straight out of undergrad. So I ended up in banking, somewhat unsurprisingly. I was decently good at quant, uh, but I wouldn't say I was uh, you know elite at modeling mm. um, and and stuff like that. So I spent a couple of years in finance. Um, let's just say, you know, it was good for building some foundational skills, like being able to, you know, assess businesses from the outside, being able to, you know, model out revenue streams, uh, cash flow, etc. cetera. Uh, but I can't say that I was passionate about the work I was doing. Um, but I was also, and I think I'm still part of that generation. It has shifted since, but I think I may be the last, uh, uh, the last generation didn't necessarily expect to be, to love what you do for work. Mm. It wasn't a requirement. It wasn't something we felt entitled to. 
Uh, like work was work, like be good at it, get ahead, uh, set yourself, your family up for success. So it didn't necessarily bother me. Like it bothered me a bit that I wasn't passionate. Uh, it was kind of two, two conflicting voices, right? Like maybe I should be passionate about what I'm doing, mm-hmm. but at the same time, that, that's not a guarantee. That's not a promise. It's not an entitlement. Um, I think um, what played in my favor was when the market really melted down in 2008. Mm. What, what it did, like I like to refer to it is it lowered my opportunity cost of leading finance because... I was fairly junior and all of a sudden, you know, with Bear Stearns and, and Lehman Brothers um, um, going under, there were all these, you know, really experienced finance professionals. All they knew how to do was finance. They were willing to take any job in finance, which made my prospects of, of moving up pretty bleak, mm. right? Having been only a year, a year and a half out of school. And that was really that light bulb moment for me. Like this may be my opportunity. Let me go out on a, on a, on a limb. Uh, I had very simple criteria for uh, what I wanted to do. I didn't want to wear a suit to work. <laughs> that was one. <laughs> and two, I didn't want to work in an environment where uh, my career path was uh uh, pre-charted, predetermined for me mm. based on where I went to school, how many years of grind I've put in mm. and, and what kind of promotional cycles were in play at the company. Those were my only criteria. So it's not that I had the foresight to say, I want to go into growth product. I want to go into growth marketing. No, just those two very simple criteria. And those I ended up criteria talking- sound correlated to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so th- 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 that basically like enabled me to end up in a very different environment. Um, I ended up making a jump to a performance marketing agency. That was sort of my move away from finance and my move into all things digital. I ended up cutting my teeth in all things user acquisition, namely on the performance marketing side. Um, saw a bunch of different verticals, a bunch of different uh, uh, business models. Uh, again, mostly focusing on top of funnel, acquiring users, acquiring leads. This is when I first started getting an inkling of what may be my superpowers. Because in finance, I was basically in the back office. I wasn't interfacing with clients. Mm. Um, I wasn't interfacing with companies. I was crunching numbers, modeling, etc. I was decent at it, not world class, right? But in 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 marketing and growth marketing, like my quant skills were more than enough. But what it also allowed me to do is it allowed me to lean into relationship building, persuasion, creativity, things that I think were natural talents for me, but I had no way to express them or lean into them in finance. Mm. Fast forward a little bit. Um, I ended up taking my skills or what, what I learned at agency side in-house. And there I started expanding my purview and, and, and focusing on all different uh, phases of the user and customer lifecycle, not just top of funnel, not just user acquisition, but engagement, retention, lifecycle marketing, monetization, um, LTV uh, maximization and uh, churn mitigation. I know a ton of buzzwords, but uh, maybe we can <laughs> maybe we can expand on some of them later in the episode. And um, yeah, and, and and started building out teams um, and realized that I was fairly good at rallying teams around a common vision, kind of taking that vision, dissecting it into achievable near, midterm and near term milestones 
creating accountability systems uh, for, you know, how to get to our goals, how to track progress against those, against those goals. All of that led up to me eventually finding my way to Grammarly. And I think Grammarly was really the big unlock. Every step I took up until Grammarly, it felt like it was a step in the right direction. But, but still, I had like, I always felt I had an enormous chip on my shoulder. Mm. I, you know, had switched like four jobs in three years, right? I thought that I had like a problem with commitment. Uh, maybe, maybe the problem is not with these companies. Maybe the problem is with me, right? So there's a little bit of that doubt um, in the back of my mind. And, and then Grammarly really became that massive, massive payoff for me emotionally, intellectually, right? Um, I ended up staying there for eight and a half years, a really exciting, fruitful, high ROI eight and a half years, right? So I was able to put to rest all those doubts about me having commitment issues and not being cut out for, you know, long-term building. Mm -hmm. And all of my experiences kind of really came together and I was able to learn on the job, grow with a company, have a tremendous amount of impact, make lifelong friendships that far, you know, extend far beyond Grammarly. Listening to your story, Yuri, reminds me so much of my personal story. You know, I, I graduated uh, a bit before you did. I was class of 01 at Harvard and went into consulting right out of school because that's what most of my friends were doing. In fact, I was trying to decide between going to Goldman in New York or Bain in Boston, ended up going to Bain in Boston. And like you, I learned some of like the fundamentals behind how businesses work, but I was by no means passionate about it. And similar to you, I, I eventually did find something I was very passionate about. And it, it part of it was that it was combining that quantitative and creative, those, those two sides. Because I do think in kind of in growth marketing and these types of things that you and I do, um, you really, it's a mix of an art and a science. Um, and so I kind of similarly felt passionate and excited about that. And for me, it was probably my time at Uber where I kind of, for it felt like um, kind of the way you described Grammarly, just feeling like, okay, this is, this is the time it all comes together. And similar to you, actually, after Uber, I spent some time advising other startups and investing in companies. And I know that's stuff that you're doing these days. So anyway, really interesting to hear the parallels. Yeah, there, there comes a time, there came a time for me at Grammarly. It was probably midway through my time there. There wasn't any kind of remarkable outside event, uh, no catalyst that I can point to. It happened from within, where all of a sudden I felt like, just like immensely proud, like immensely grateful and immensely proud of being where I am, having accomplished what I've accomplished. Um, and that's when I told myself that I, I started feeling less like I'm, I'm racing to prove myself. Right. And, and it felt like, okay, this is great. Like I'm still enjoying it. There's still so much to do, but I, I felt like I was going to be more kind of like attentive toward myself, more forgiving uh, toward myself eventually after Grammarly. Like, even though I still had a long way to go at Grammarly, I ended up staying another four, four to five years. I already knew at that point that when the Grammarly journey comes to an end, I'm going to take some time to celebrate that, process it, internalize it, et cetera, et cetera. And again, purely internally driven. It wasn't that there was, you know, it's not like Grammarly exited or there was like a major liquidity event or, or something. It wasn't tied to any um, outside stimuli. 
Mm. Um, Greg, you know what? You know what? Hearing that kind of reminded me of um, your story of when you were competing professionally as a triathlete and you finally started giving yourself permission to win races. Mm-hmm. There's a freeing effect, isn't it? I think you said it earlier, um, Yuri, when you were kind of talking about you have that chip on your shoulder, right? And it drives you and drives you, but at the same time it's kind of not the person that you feel you are, right? It's like, and then all of a sudden you hit sort of some of these milestones and you start to get this feedback and now you're free to play. Like you've ticked the boxes and you feel like you should be there. You know, it's like, I'm there, it's okay. And, and when you tell yourself it's okay and you're free to play, then the magic really happens. Like now there's nothing holding you back. The, the ego is kind of in check, you know, how to manage it and away you go. And I, I love both of your stories because they're, and, and when I was trying to do, ask the question earlier, Ed, it was exactly that. I'm like, Ed's got the exact same story. <laughs> it's like you both started with that quant mindset and then you've gone into the behavioral science side of it, right? And, and that's the fa- fascinating thing about growth. It's like you have to have the quant, but you've also got that behavioral science. And I don't know that a lot of people have it to the level that you both do, but it's interesting to hear that you've both come from that kind of quant finance numbers side and then you have almost the human side that you don't not just head in a book. Well, Yuri, you know, you mentioned Grammarly, that it was really special for you. What were some of the, the highs and lows experiences throughout Grammarly that you had that you really learned from? Let's start with the highs. You know, a lot of the a lot of the highs, I would say, they're not necessarily specific points in time. That's the that's the interesting thing about it is that like you know as as as, as Steve Jobs said, I'm just finishing his biography right now. Right, you can connect what is a hundred percent of the dots looking back. It's kind of similar in that when you're when you're in the grind when you're in the day to day you fail to realize what the highs are and so when i uh, but it's when you're discussing the journey in its entirety th- that those highs emerge mm. so i'll give you an example during my entire eight and a half years at grammarly i was always hiring right um i was always on interview panels i always had roles open on my team i was you know because b- giving my given my role in the company i was also just like always pulled into uh, you know, interview panels on other teams, etc. And you're just doing it and you're doing it and you're doing it for eight and a half years. Only after leaving Grammarly, having opportunities like this to reflect on my journey, did I realize that in the early days of hiring at Grammarly, every call with a prospective candidate would start with, hey, so, how, so by way of background, how much do you know about Grammarly? And in 99% of the cases, the answer was nothing. And then I would proceed into my elevator pitch of how Grammarly is more than just a glorified grammar checker and is really going to you know, augment human potential when it comes to communication. Mm-hmm. And at some point, which I failed to notice in the moment, at some point, that ratio completely inverted. Mm-hmm. And I no longer had to ask the question, how much do you know about Grammarly? That is an, an incredible high. Mm-hmm. An incredible high because, you know, for someone who, who's, who's done hundreds, if not a thousand plus, you know, interview calls, seeing that in, invert, right, to where it's like, I don't have to tell you what grammar is. You're eager. That's product market fit right there. Right. <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The product being the job and yeah, right. and the market being the candidate market. Yeah. And uh, um, yeah. And, 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 you know, and people wanted to work there. 
Yeah. There used to be, we used to look at, at candidates, you know, uh, at prospects from, uh, because Grammarly was bootstrapped for the first seven years of its existence. And that also provided some challenges from an employer brand standpoint, right? People want to see that you're backed by top tier VCs, right? That helps you attract top talent. We didn't have that. So we had to really claw our way. It was hard for us to get, we, we got incredible talent. It was just harder for us to attract them. And they didn't have all of the external branding that you typically look for in, 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 in top candidates. So that was inc- incredibly rewarding. What were the other highs? I mean, you know, Grammarly has been able to maintain, like Grammarly started as being a bootstrap company, which means, you know, by definition, they had to be profitable, had to make more money than it spends. When we were discussing whether to take on external funding, et cetera, one of the considerations, what is it going to do to our identity? Like, are we... You know, are we going to become more laissez faire about ROI or whatnot? One thing that I'm really proud of that, you know, now, what is it, five years post taking on um, external funding, uh, Grammarly has remained profitable. And so that DNA uh, that was, you know, embedded in the company from the beginning of uh, sustainable, profitable growth, being able to control your own destiny, being built for any market conditions and being able to sustain any kind of market swings like that's that's still true of the company today that's amazing i didn't i didn't realize that grammarly was bootstrap and so that was a conscious decision right by by all of you there or, or? I, I did not play a part in that decision mm. i was a kid in my mid 20s try, trying to do well with the scope that i was given i think it was a conscious decision to an extent some of it was also by necessity frankly or rather let's call it a culturally influenced mm. Grammarly's co-founders are from Kyiv, Ukraine, no access, no network in North America or, or, or a very small one, no access to, you know, abundant funding institutions, mm. but also being raised in a different culture in terms of how to build businesses. Mm. Interesting. Um, I think in North America, probably Western Europe as well. And frankly, this is, I think, is spreading uh, uh, quite aggressively to all parts of the world. When you have an entrepreneurial idea, you immediately, so it feels like you immediately kind of like think about institutional dollars mm. or, or like, I feel like that's happening to a, to a large extent, uh, certainly, you know, more so in North America uh, than in other places. Um, that wasn't the case uh, in, in Ukraine, uh, especially in 2007, I guess. Yeah, right. That's fascinating. You know, listening to you talk about Grammarly reminded me a lot of the early days at Uber, where the first question my parents asked me when I left Facebook to join Uber is, why are you going to join a limo company? You know, and, and we, we faced similar challenges recruiting people in the early days. I remember trying to recruit some people from Google, and they were like, why would I join this company? I don't know anyone else at Google who's ever... Yep. gone to work here, like, why would I even consider it? You know, whereas just a couple of years later, we had lots of people coming to us um, mm-hmm. asking for jobs, right? So all of that changed in a very short period of time. How do you approach growth strategy when, when you're sort of working with a new company, when, when, when you, you both have, you know, advise companies, when you first sort of tackle, you, you, you're joining a new company, you're advising them, what is the first sort of steps that you do in terms of strategizing the growth? And then the second part to that is how do you know when that is working? 
How do you know when your growth strategy is working? And, and when do you know to pull the pin or keep going? Um, I had my annual uh, physical exam yesterday. So, so this analogy is just kind of begging to be, to be leveraged. I feel like when I first assess a company, and this happens even before deciding whether we're going to work together, right? Because a lot of what I do uh, during the getting to know each other stage as we assess fit is I'm very big on giving away as much value as I can in the time that we spend together, even if you know nothing commercial comes of it. And that requires some level of assessment. So I find myself like a primary care physician, right? Doing like, a, doing like an annual physical on the company. And so uh, there are some vitals that I need to check, mm-hmm. but those vitals are gonna differ based on, like in the case of a physician, probably differs based on gender, age, maybe some other things, right? Some things are standard for any kind of patient, but some specific things, maybe you got to order some specific tests based on, you know, family history, yada, yada, yada. Okay, enough with that analogy. No, it's good But analogy. similarly, mm. right, companies have different business models. Di- there, there are different funding stages. And so I got to order different tests, right? I got to order different lab work um, uh, depending on those different attributes uh, that the company has. Because even like to understand how well the company is doing, it's like how well against what? Mm. Against a peer set, right? Against some benchmarks. So you have to really understand what is the peer set, how to define the peer set, how to define the benchmarks, right? So everything starts with that sort of like um, assessment. From there, uh, usually that assessment has a couple of uh, buckets to it. Number one is user acquisition. How are you acquiring users today? Which channels are working? Uh, what is your uh, what are your unit economics on channels if you're using paid marketing, um, and how that compares to where I think you should be at your current state, at your current business model, etc. So there will be things that come out of that where it's like, hey, there may be some obvious channels you're not leaning into, and I've seen a lot of success with comparable companies with comparable um, comparable business models, um, or maybe you're over relying on paid acquisition, which was a common thing, especially. Up, up until about eight months ago, right? Over relying on paid acquisition, which means you are, you know, probably you, you're being too forgiving or too lenient with your customer acquisition costs. Um, you're also not diversifying your channels. So if you're going to go for another funding round, that sort of over, over reliance on paid marketing is not going to be a good look. Then, you know, your, your second question was with respect to how do you know if the growth strategy is working? You have a, leading indicators of a growth strategy working and you have lagging indicators of a growth strategy working. Uh, The leading indicators, honestly, the most leading indicators is usually buy-in and alignment inside of the company. So that's number one. Like the strategy that you're putting together, is it clicking? Because ultimately these people know their business better than you as as an advisor and will always know their business better than you. And so uh, they should be able to call bullshit on, you know, a growth strategy that doesn't make sense. It's not like they're, they're not just there, you know, receiving the growth strategy from you, like, you know, like 10 commandments from Moses. So, so, so that's one, like the a leading indicator is like, are people getting excited? Are they taking the growth strategy and spinning up ideas off of it that you yourself as an advisor couldn't have foreseen? That's usually a really positive early indicator. Number two, culture. 
like any growth strategy, for it to be successful, you have to have a, an appropriate growth culture internally where growth is not like, sure, growth is a function, but growth is also a mindset. And while there may be only uh, a specific group of people that are doing things designed to drive growth directly every day, everyone in a company should have a growth mindset. Um, everyone should be taking inputs from what's happening in growth and seeing how they can apply it. Everybody should feel encouraged and empowered to pitch growth ideas. That's also a good early indicator, mm. a good leading indicator. Unfortunately, there is not much in between. Indicators are either leading or they're lagging by definition, right? Lagging indicators is, of course, those are your KPIs, mm -hmm. right? Like are the KPIs that you are trying to move, are they moving in the right direction? One may be nuance that can happen where maybe the KPIs are not moving in the right direction, but are you getting through, are you powering through your growth hypotheses in an efficient way? And are you coming out of those initiatives, out of those experiments with very clear learnings? The inverse of that is bad, where let's say a growth bet didn't work and you also have a hard time explaining why or a hard time distilling a learning from it. Um, that's one thing that I try to preach um, is that the way you design a growth initiative or a growth experiment, you're designing it for, for two things, for two outcomes. Number one, you're designing it for success, right? Obviously, you're trying, you want it to work. You want it to drive the projected outcome that, that, that you have identified. But the second thing you're designing it for is you're designing it for clear learnings, um, so that even if it fails, you can yeah. come away and say, here is why. Mm -hmm. You're testing the market. Yeah. yeah. And your data, your data is statistically significant. Um, and you've answered all of your biggest unknowns. Ed, have you got any follow-on to that in terms of your strategy when you, when you work with other companies? There are three things that I like to do when I'm working with a new company on growth. The first thing is I get a lot of startups that say, well, can you help me grow? And my first question is, well, do you have product market fit? Do you have retention, right? I, I view retention as kind of the quantitative way to see if there is product market fit. So until you have product market fit, don't try to grow, right? Because you've got a leaky bucket at that point. It's kind of like, what's the point of growing until you have that product market fit? So that's question number one. Once you do have that product market fit, then I do think it's all about growth and aggressive growth. So the first thing I like to do once a company is ready to grow is define what is that North Star metric? What is that one metric that you want to you wanna grow and grow aggressively? And then set, set an aggressive goal for where you want that metric to be um, over the next six months, you know, by the end of the year. Sometimes you can look at historical data to make some aggressive assumptions around where that could be. Other times early on, you just have to kind of make up some numbers and, and go for it. But once you have that, you can then basically draw a line between where you are today and where you want to be in the future. Over time, you can, you, you can start doing things to look for season, seasonality and stuff like that. So it's not just literally a straight line, but initially you could just draw a straight line and then every week check your progress and see, are you above or below that line? Mm. You know, and we did that at Facebook and Uber and anytime we were below that line for that week, you know, it was kind of like, all right, 
house on fire. How do we fix this? Why are we not on track? Hmm. And then the third thing I'd say is just, I'm all about taking big swings uh, to, to find step changes to drive growth rather than just a lot of like little iterations, especially in the early stages of a, of a company. You've got to take those big swings. And when I look back at my time at both Facebook and Uber, for example, I, I can count on one hand the things we did that truly created step changes in growth. Even though we were running hundreds, if not thousands of experiments every year, each year there was maybe one thing we did that drove more growth than everything else combined. Mm. So those would be probably my my top top three. I totally agree like on big bets needing needing to make up the lion's share of your growth investments early on. One way that I try to persuade companies on that is the following. I say, when you're an early stage company, you have myriad of unknowns. And the faster you can answer your biggest unknowns, the clearer your path becomes, the clearer your sort of like optimal path for success becomes. And if you just stick with iterative experiments, I don't know, landing page testing, uh, right? Like changing the number of fields in your signup form, all of those unknowns remain unknown. And that just creates like way too much fog between where you are today and your you know, vision statement. Yeah, totally agree with that. When I say big bets, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be something that takes a huge amount of work to get it done. Sometimes big bets can actually be not that much work. You know, I, I think I may have shared before the example of encouraging riders to sign up to become drivers uh, at Uber. That was a big bet, but we built that in less than a week. You know, all it involved was putting a little button in the rider app saying, become a driver, <laughs> you know, and overnight when we turned that on, it was suddenly as big of a source of new drivers for us as all of our paid marketing combined. Mm-hmm. So I love looking for the, the, the things that can create step changes with as little work as possible. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. And you, you mentioned, you talked about paid marketing a moment ago. It seems like a lot has changed in these last couple of years. I can't tell if companies have gone from sort of this high growth mentality of paid marketing and like you, you mean, spending other people's money basically to, to get marketing, marketing, marketing to, you know, in the environment that we're in, it's a little bit more companies, are they pulling back more and more in survival mode? And, and do you think paid marketing is still a, a good way for a lot of companies to go or does it depend on where they are in their cycle? As with most systems, you need to go through a cleansing process, right? That's why, like, for instance, people who invest in public markets and, and do it professionally, they're not worried about you know, recession. They kind of welcome it uh, even to an extent, uh, those cycles, because they understand that it's good for the overall health of the system, right? Because there's a lot of excess that builds up and you get to kind of fl- flush it out. 
performance marketing is kind of a microcosm of that, mm. right? Like the, 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 we, you know, the, 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 the largest bull market, what was it? A 13 year bull market that we went through. Um, it has basically encouraged a lot of excess in performance marketing as well, mm-hmm. where, um, you know, even though it's performance marketing is a very quantitative field. And so to enable that excess, we started have to, we, the, the, the industry started, um, kind of like, um, uh, getting more flexible with some of our uh, guardrails, we said, you know what? Like maybe we can have a longer payback period. Uh, maybe we can be a little bit more lenient with how we attribute value in some of these channels, right? And so we were getting lenient at all these things while still telling ourselves that we were being quantitative and rigorous because we weren't. I mean, we weren't technically throwing out all of our guardrails. We were just you know, cutting some corners with some of our guardrails. What that resulted in is it resulted in companies that, you know, consumer companies that had payback periods of uh, two plus years. It resulted in really early stage companies, right? Because remember, we had companies raising 15 to $20 million Series A's uh, with teams of like 15 people Right. So really low burn compared to the, the check size that was just written to them mm. and the expectation from the investors, from others in the in the ecosystem was like, now you got to really hit the gas pedal. And what, what is the most responsive gas pedal that you can hit? It's paid marketing. Yeah, right. It's not SEO. It's not PLG, which requires hiring and even, you know, and, 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 and you know, building more things in the product it's performance marketing these companies were conditioned to think that they can raise twice a year right or once every nine months and so it was like how can we juice as much growth as possible you know because that's what gets rewarded and so that all has changed that all came you know crashing down there is no one specific to blame for that excess i think it's um kind of conflagrations of different culprits now obviously the sentiment has changed uh, you have to, you know, get to, is it Paul Graham's essay on um, uh, Default Alive? I think it was Paul Graham's essay called Default Alive. Uh, basically, like everybody, I think he, he wrote it a while ago, but it, but it was it resurfaced again uh, during this uh, economic climate. But it's basically like every company should be striving to get to Default Alive, which means where it doesn't need to raise any funding at all, which is a very tall task. Uh, most companies, most venture back companies will not be able to get there. So what those companies are hoping for is that they can at least extend their runway for two years, right? That's kind of like the most uh, pessimistic uh, projection uh, of, of, of how, how, how long this economic darkness may last. Yes, performance marketing budgets are being pulled. It, of course, varies by company stage and company's financial health. Uh, but even big companies are are, are doing it. Um, responsible large companies are doing it as well, and profitable companies are doing it as well. Mm. They're just doing it to a lesser extent. So what's happening? Let's take a company like Grammarly right now, without divulging anything specific. Right, a really a really kind of like prolific performance marketing engine, profitable company. But you know, if there is a softening in 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 in, in demand overall due to like the looming recession. Right, like Grammarly is not going to be immune to those effects. It's going to feel it in its subscriptions as well. And so, as a result, let's say it would need to pull back its performance marketing budget some. I was just going to ask if you've seen acquisition costs recently going either up or down. Bingo. So that's what I was getting to. So 
because a lot of the bad performance marketing money is leaving the system, companies that are good at performance marketing like Grammarly can take up some of that available inventory and benefit from less competition for that inventory, mm-hmm. right? And therefore lower its CAC. So if, yeah. again, all numbers are made up, but if this company, you know, company, company A was going to pull back its performance marketing budget by 10% in response to the softening in demand, maybe it only has to pull back its budget by 5% because it gets a bump from less competition. Yep. Right. Makes sense. What are some other ways then that we, you know, a company should really focus on? You mentioned SEO. If we're pulling back on terms of budgets and, and trying to extend their runways, what are some of the areas that you'd be saying to a lot of businesses now in terms of their marketing and getting their word out to the world or the best way f- for them to go forward? Because th- because this answer can really vary. Let's pick a let's pick a company stage. So let's like my sweet spot is usually Series A, Series B companies, mm-hmm. right? Or like, I would say like. Seed through Series B, let's call it. Okay. Right. Which, for the most part, for the most part, these companies are not profitable. Right. The vast majority of them yet. Um, and so, uh, a couple of things are happening. Um, I, I was kind of trying to trace the the, the the causality here, the sequence of events. So, pre kind of like market meltdown, these companies were conditioned to think, you know, it's growth over everything, and also. There is an abundance of institutional money out there. As long as we're showing top line growth, we should be able to raise once, once uh, every six months, once every nine months. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about those being your milestones, you only think about channels that can deliver inside of those time horizons. And so almost by definition, SEO never made it into the conversation because they cared about what can we do in the next six months to show progress, right? And raise that 3x evaluation or something. Right. It was just a rat race. And SEO is a long term investment, right? That you may see yield 12, 18 months from now. Right. So never enter the conversation with these earlier stage companies. And I was I was inside of a lot of these discussions, right? Those board meetings and executive meetings uh, where SEO was just not, not not getting the consideration. Do you think so now, do you think early stage companies should invest in SEO? I think it depends. And here is where here are the requirements. First, I'll tell you about what happened because I think it also is the kind of answers the question of which companies are a good fit for SEO. So now it's like it became like, hey, it's all about hygiene. It's all about pruning. Cut your burn. Make sure you have at least two years of runway. Unanimous guidance from like a bunch of a bunch of VCs, right? And so company, some companies were able to do that. Some companies aren't. The companies that were run in a more or less responsible way. They were able to get their shit together fairly quickly, right? Maybe they have to do some layoffs. They cut back some marketing spend. They got under control. And most of the companies that I work with fall into that bucket because I guess that's how I pick them. But uh, they were like, okay, we did the stuff we needed to do. We, we got, we, we, you know, we, we got our hygiene in order. We now have 36 months of runway. We, you know, we cut back on our performance marketing spend because the payback period there was just like not going to cut it based on the guidance that, 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 that's kind of like given today. But th- 36 months of runway is a good amount of runway. So now they're like, what are some areas where we can invest? And that is now, now that they're no longer expecting to raise funding, or at least they're prepared not to have to raise for the next two years, all of a sudden that is a time horizon that invites SEO back into the conversation. Uh, and, that's, and, that, and I think that's a healthy thing. 
So to answer your question, should companies invest there? If they get their shit in order, if they have at least two years, hopefully more of runway, they're generating revenue. They see a path to break even, right? It's not just a wild dream, but they see a path to getting there. Yes, that warrants discussing SEO, but then there are some very SEO specific considerations to say, is SEO a, 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 do we have good product channel fit with SEO? That's a separate thing. When, when companies are coming to monetize themselves now, can you give me some insights as to what companies should be looking for in terms of being freemium versus premium offerings um, and what you've seen sort of work and what hasn't worked? My sweet spot, I guess, my center of gravity are, you know, I, like prosumer subscription businesses, right? Where they're, they're sort of like, like they can be used in single player mode, but also in multiplayer mode. Um, there is a strong self-serve growth engine, right? Where you don't need to like do like top-down sales, mm. strong bottom-up adoption uh, amongst uh, users. And uh, the, the, the user, even the individual user is using the product usually for work, right? right? As opposed to like call it like, as opposed to like Spotify and Netflix, both subscription businesses, but pure consumer. Grammarly, Canva, you know, whimsical, otter.ai, kind of like live in that prosumer space. Um, so that's, that's my sweet spot. So uh, it, it, for prosumer businesses, it's almost like table stakes. There's got to be some kind of way to try the product for free, right? The question is how. And that's where you have a lot of different flavors, mm-hmm. right? From the most restrictive, restricting, well, the most restrictive would be like, the pro- there is no free offering at all for the product. It's only a paid offering, but you can get a free trial of the paid offering upon entering a credit card. That's the most restrictive, right? The most, uh, I would say, uh, liberal version of having a, some kind of way to try the product for free would be the reverse trial. The reverse trial meaning that every new user who enters the product starts on the paid version. Mm-hmm. They're using the pro version, they're using the paid version, but they're using it for free and they never have to submit a, a, a payment method. That is their first introduction to the product experience, which is usually constrained either by time or by usage. More, more common by time, Canva is a great example, 30-day um, uh, free trial. And then at the end of that experience, at the end of that trial, they're prompted to either pay to maintain same level of access, or if they, if they decline to pay, they get downgraded to the free, more limited version of the product. Right. So then the question, the, the, the sort of the eternal, the, the billion-dollar question is how companies should decide where in that spectrum uh, they should fall. Mm. Uh, you know, ultimately, the answer is, 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 is um, pretty nuanced, but there are some, I would say, guidelines that you can apply. Okay, So uh, number one, do you have strong habit loops in your product? And have you figured out how to create lock-in? Lock-in refers to where downgrading or switching to a different product is really painful. Uh, if that is the case, take Dropbox, for instance, mm-hmm. right? You, you, like Dropbox in the early days, 
you start out, you adopt it as sort of like, you know, a place where you store photos initially. That was before you store documents there, right? Um, and then they may, I think you were given like 100, uh, 100 megabytes of storage under the free tier, right? As soon as you got, uh, you know, you were approaching the 100, 100 uh, uh, megabytes, uh, they prompted you to upgrade, right? If you turn that down, like you have to like, what do you do? Do you stop storing photos in Dropbox? Do you like introduce, a, like, do, do you like adopt like Google Drive alongside? Do you move everything out of Dropbox to a different storage, right? So, so, so there is that, like, it, it was fairly painful and inconvenient to switch. When, when you have those kind of dynamics, I think a reverse trial is perfect. Mm. Get all of your new users to use the paid product have them really engaged with those paid features, having have them invest and build that lock-in with the product. And then as long as your price point is kind of like matches up with their willingness to pay, which something is something you can test into over time, the reverse, like you, you should do really well in terms of upgrade potential. When you don't have lock-in features, you don't, uh, you don't have like strong habit loops, you probably want to err more conservatively on the side of maybe like a credit card gated uh, free trial of a paid product, right? Uh, because then the motivation for upgrades are a bit different. Let's take Airtable, for instance. Airtable um, is um, has a pretty steep adoption curve. Like it's not like super easy because the jobs to be done that Airtable serves are fairly complex jobs to be done. Right. It's like you're trying to build out an automation or you're trying to. Uh, so there's just like a, they, their activation rate is not very high because it's asking the user a lot mm. to get value out of it. And so a reverse trial probably wouldn't work. I'm just speculating, probably wouldn't work too well for them because most of the users who get into the product don't end up activating. That is a case where you should build out, you should focus more on the free product experience. So every new uh, person who signs up for Airtable, I believe they start out on the free tier. Figure out who your highest value users are. How do you get them to take baby steps, reward them along the way, right? So they could, so that they activate yada, yada. And then eventually based on where you place the paywalls, they're going to run up against some limitations. By that time, they have created enough lock-in. Mm. Right. Also, Airtable is, you know, you know, obviously has network effects. So you use that uh, time while they're in that free product to get them to invite people and collaborate with people. Right. Um, and so, uh, uh, yeah, that's where I'd, I'd, I'd say I would focus more on uh, where, 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 where I don't think it's an obvious fit for a reverse trial. I do want to quickly just discuss both of your thoughts on AI, just how it affects growth and how companies should be implementing it. There are a lot of considerations about AI that I, while I understand in principle are important, right? Ethics, privacy, security, I understand their importance. I choose not to speak on them because I think there are much stronger uh, thought leaders out there and I'll leave it to them. Those, are, those areas are too important for me to mm -hmm. try to kind of like fumble my way through them. Mm, fair enough. Okay? I'm gonna like wear my growth hat and, and, and tell you what it means from that standpoint. Look, uh, what's happening with chat GPT, GPT-3, those are kind of the AI products that I am uh, most um, involved with, like in, in terms of like the client work that I do. Um, some of the visual uh, and video uh, AI image generators, I'm, I'm exposed to those as well. 
What's happening is basically a commoditization typhoon. You know, th this proliferation of AI uh, platforms is going to commoditize away so much value creation. So because everyone has access to GPT-3, Everyone has access to those like AI imaging uh, tools, etc. You see everybody starting to incorporate those like Notion, just, uh, you know, Notion, Canva. Uh, they just introduced like chat GPT-3 powered, uh, sorry, GPT-3 powered functionality in their products, etc. So, so we know that that's going to get commoditized the way no, uh, language learning models are going to get commoditized the way. So how, how are companies going to be able to differentiate themselves? Um, and I think the big levers are going to be around user experience. Um, it, it's around uh, probably uh, contextual awareness, um, right? So uh, of, of the suggestions you give, of the outputs you create. And it's probably over time, over time, it's overlaying proprietary learning models, assuming you, you, for companies that have enough scale on top of what's uh, available out of the box with some of these tools. Mm. And, and honestly, as a marketer, I will say uh, a, a brand building and, and kind of like leaning into positioning um, is going to create another important differentiating lever. I just say I view some of these AI tools like GPT-3 and ChatGPT as just, it's kind of like having this superpower where you can suddenly do a lot of stuff that used to take many humans to do that suddenly can just all, all be automated. Some of the companies that may benefit the most from these technologies are companies that either were not able to do some of these things because it would have just required too many human contractors, for example, or companies that are suddenly able to do a lot more with a lot less. Uh, you know, just take our own startup, for example, at any question. We are already using GPT-3 to moderate questions, tag questions, come up with the TLDR summaries of answers based on the transcripts. We're using Descript for some of our videos to cut out the, the pauses and the filler words. So there are all these little things we're doing. You know, I wouldn't call us an AI company, but we're using these AI tools to do the things we're doing much more efficiently than we were before. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to see AI disrupt pretty much every company out there and the ones that take advantage of that and and do so sooner i think are going to be the ones that find those efficiencies um sooner and end up winning so i think it's like a super important thing for for all companies to understand how to use in a somewhat counterintuitive way i actually think the companies that may benefit the most are the ones that kind of just use it as a tool but are not actually the ai companies because to Yuri's point, the companies point. that go all in on this, that are just 100% about this, will actually become more commoditized because mm -hmm. anyone can do it, right? Yeah. But if you use it as something complementary to all the other stuff you're doing, I think yeah. that's where we'll find some really interesting things happening. Mm -hmm. So um, those are my thoughts on AI. You know, you, you started out, Greg, by saying, like, can we draw any analogies to um, some of our passions outside of work? So maybe I'll just kind of finish on that note. You know, as you know, I'm a uh, got into triathlons uh, over the last five years of my life, and um, you know, some of the parallels I see there include uh, number one, goal setting. 
you know, you set, you have that race and you're like, I want to run under this time. You set that goal, you train consistently every week, you put in the work and you do a little bit more each week and it's just compounding. Um, I think the same thing with, with starting a company, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to get sleep. You've got to, you know, look after yourself if you're going to be your best self um, at work every day. Uh, and then finally, it's a it's a team sport. You know, even the triathlon is a team sport. You need a team, as mm-hmm. as you've said on many of your podcast episodes. It's all about the team that you surround yourself with. And um, with a startup, it's the same thing. So, those are some of the parallels I see between you know, my passion of triathlon and, and my passion for startups. But I'd be curious to hear um, your, if you have anything from your past. I know you were, I think, a professional ballroom dancer, right? Yeah, I, I well, not not a professional, but a competitive ballroom dancer. Okay. But that's only due to age. <laughs> um, you have to, like, yeah, there's a whole, like, its own scale in, in ballroom dancing. But the only thing that I would add, um, because first of all, you know, disclaimer, I, I, I don't think I did it at the level of, of intensity and rigor that, that, that both of you have done your sports. But the, the, the one thing I will add to Ed's list um, is uh, of sort of parallels uh, is you have to enjoy the journey, which in the case of triathlon, it's, it's got to be the training. Yeah, 100 percent. And in the case of dancing, it's got to be the practices. You know, we were competing, uh, we were doing uh, two competitions a month, one of them local, one of them travel. You know, I did this uh, through um, uh, through middle school and high school and a little bit in college. Like I sort of like retire and then came out of retirement. You know, when it was during school, it was uh, three hour practices, five days a week, you know, a lot of absences from school. Uh, you know, while still trying to do well, um, excuse the absences, I guess. When I was working in banking, fresh out of undergrad, I was also training and competing. Banking was easy, easy, easily um, a 60 hour a week kind of thing. There were a lot of uh, practices that were like, it, it, it would have been easy to quit, mm. right? The competitions, it's all like adrenaline, it's thrill, it's mm-hmm. like, you're not, mm-hmm. you know, you don't question why are you here, mm-hmm. right? It's the practices. So, but I think you really have to enjoy the journey. You have I to enjoy that, yeah. uh, the training. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, I've often said on this show that I've always considered running to, to be the most pure form of dance. Uh, it's like when you feel, when you run and, you've, and if you're listening to music and you, 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 it's like, and the body, you can feel your brain tapping the top of your skull. For me, it's like the most pure form of dance. So I'm, not, I'm no ballroom dancer. I, I, don't, mind the, <laughs> yeah. I don't mind the dance fall though, but, I, but yeah, I've always yeah. kind of considered running to be a pure form of dance. And I, Didn't Caleb Dressel answer a question on any question about how swimming, um, someone asked him, is swimming more of like a dance or a sport? And uh, I'm not sure if that was the exact question, but he, he did talk about it really. He's like, I love this question. It really is like you're dancing in the water. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think when you can get to the point and you get so fit at what you do and the movement becomes so natural that the, and you have tremendous feel, then it becomes a dance. Then it becomes, yeah. I, I get it. Um, and I also love the fact that you talk about, you know, and I've mentioned on this show, you know, you, you, you set your outcome goal, your destination, but it really is about the process goals, the turning up every day and, and for the most part, loving what you're doing. You know, <laughs> I think if you can be more than 50% happy and enjoying what you're doing, that's, that's a win. 
doing work because I got to do work and provide for my family and everything else. But it was nice to find something where I could actually enjoy the day to day. Um, Absolutely. And, and it's a pretty great gift to have that. But guys, this has been fantastic. I actually feel like the three of us, we could be like the all in podcast. You know, those guys, they have their, <laughs> I feel like we should be turning up every week. I feel like we've only, I feel like we've only just scratched the surface. I, I skimmed over so many uh, yeah. areas I wanted to touch on with you guys, but just the, the knowledge here um, and just to unpack just a little bit. It's just been absolutely fantastic. But I think there's something more here, guys. I, I don't know if this should be a one-off, just putting it out there. Uh, but this was, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So thanks for both of you coming well, on. Yeah, whatever it is, I, I, I'm not J-Cal. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll call right out. <laughs> I think you, you guys no, know them no. all personally. So yeah, yeah. We, we can be well, whoever we want. We can name ourselves whatever we want. But this is really great. Yuri, for thanks sure. for coming on, sharing all your yeah, knowledge base and your journey. Truly appreciate it. Ed, as always, um, tremendous gratitude for you and everything you've been doing and, and for me in my life. So Feeling is mutual, Greg. Thanks for having us. And Yuri, really great to see you too. Likewise, guys. Thank right. you. This was fun. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. You can find all the show notes and everything else at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Thanks a lot for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.